Thank you so much. Good morning. Good morning. Didn't you love that story about the 80-year-old who could touch her toes? I'm 39. I can't touch my toes. Um, so perhaps I need prayer afterwards. Wendy, maybe you could anoint me for touching my toes. That would be awesome. Um, well, good morning. And, uh, you know, as, as Paul said earlier uh, regarding the news about Simon, I think just as I was praying this morning, I just reminded what Jesus said. He said he prepared us for this sort of stuff. He said, in this life, you will have many troubles, which is perhaps not his most encouraging prophetic word, but it strikes a note of reality about our lives. Actually, in this life, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that your life is immune from facing trials and troubles. Jesus said, in this life, you will have many troubles. Scripture says, in fact, we face trials of many different kinds. But, says Jesus, take heart because I have overcome the world. So our expectation is that when we walk through trials and when we walk through troubles, we actually overcome in the troubles. We overcome in the trials because of who we follow, because we're followers of Jesus. And he is the ultimate overcomer. And I would just encourage us to take seriously God's call to pray in these kind of moments, uh, not just to kind of let life slide by and kind of passively think, well, I'm sure things will just kind of work their way out and that things will be fine, things will get sorted. Actually, the scriptures say that we should engage in these kind of moments and that we should pray. In fact, James 1 says, if anyone is in trouble, let him pray. Let him pray. And so if, uh, if you're uh, like me, wanting to just engage with God and pray into some of these issues, not just with Simon, but with other kind of issues and troubles and things people are walking through at the moment, can I encourage you to come and pray tonight as a church? Come and pray. The church prays well in crisis. So can I encourage us to come and pray tonight? It's really, really important. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray and then we're going to dive into what we're talking about this morning. So Jesus, we thank you so much that you are the ultimate overcomer. Thank you that you have won the victory. Thank you that death has been defeated. Thank you that the tomb is empty. Thank you our Savior is alive. Thank you that every enemy is now under your feet. You are ruling and reigning. You are the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Prince of princes. Thank you, Lord, that you are not worried at all this morning, but you are utterly impregnable in your faith about the outcome of this world. Lord, thank you that you are in charge. You are our God. You are Yahweh. You are the great I am. You're the righteous one. You're the Rose of Sharon. Lord, you are the the three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit. Lord, thank you this morning that we serve a God who is utterly, utterly mighty. And so God, even just right now, for some of us who are walking through our own trials, we lift up our eyes above our trials and we say, where does our help come from? It comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Lord, we thank you that we need not fear. Thank you for what Psalm 46 says, that even though the earth gives way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, we will not fear. We will not fear. And Father, we thank you today that we are no longer slaves to fear, but we are children of the living God. And so Holy Spirit, I pray in the, in the time we have left this morning, just rush in on us, Holy Spirit. Come and speak to us, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, well, this morning is the last session in our series uh, called The Treasure Principle, where we have been really primarily looking at how we can honor God in the way that we uh, manage and steward our finances, how we live lives out of generosity because of who we now are, because we're grafted into Christ. He's the ultimate generous giver. Therefore, I'm called to be a generous giver because I'm in him. This is what we've been looking at together, how we steward our finance. And as we land this series today, I want to just talk about a different kind of treasure 
and how we steward it. And it's a, it's a treasure that we see uh, very clearly in the life of Jesus. And Paul speaks about this treasure in Colossians 2 verse 2. He says, My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's such a beautiful description of Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you need to know this about Jesus. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In other words, he is the one that you've been waiting for your whole life. Every answer to every question is found in Jesus. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so this morning, I just want to talk a little bit about how we steward and manage the treasure of wisdom in our lives. Because when we handle and steward wisdom, it has the potential to literally shape and change entire cultures and nations. I was talking to a friend of mine recently. She'd been to one of our kind of prophetic training schools here that we ran in the church. And she was saying how in the training school, God began to speak to her about standing before uh, chief executives and uh, high-powered kind of board members and kings and rulers and princes and how she was going to start to have influence in another realm. And so she kind of had this revelation from God, wasn't quite sure how it was going to work out. Uh, she went back into her workplace and uh, there was a particular, um, a particular piece of work that the company she was working for were thinking of pitching for. But it was so out of their league that they were thinking they probably wouldn't. But as she was praying about it, she felt God remind her of this promise that you're going to stand before CEOs and rulers. And she suddenly felt faith to pitch for this particular piece of work. And so she went to her boss and she said, listen, I, I think we should pitch for this particular piece of work for our company. And he said, well, listen, this is way out of our league. This is a billion pound contract. Okay, we have never had anything like this before. In fact, it's slightly outside of our expertise. I'm not sure this is right. And she said, well, listen, I just feel a confidence that we should go for this. And he said, well, okay, if you think that we should, then it's on you. You go for it, feel free. So anyway, she pitched for this billion pound contract and she won it. She won it. And she is now basically involved in managing this project. It's a 10-year project that's spanning many, many different countries uh, that, that involves 12 different multinational companies. And she is basically kind of chairing operations of this billion pound contract. And so in the first kind of meeting of these 12 companies, she said it went really badly. <laughs> All these kind of different guys had competing agendas and different ways they wanted to do things. And she said it was really awkward. And so she went back to God and she said, God, what do I do about this? You gave us this contract. How, how's this going to work? And he said, I want you to get a meeting with all 12 chief executives, have a face-to-face -face meeting with them. So again, she went back to her boss and she said, listen, uh, I think maybe the way we need to work this, I need a face-to-face -face meeting with every chief executive. And he said, you will never, ever get 12 meetings with these chief executives of these meetings. It will never happen. At the best, you'll see their PAs or their, their kind of executive assistants. You will never get a face-to-face -face meeting with all of them. Well, anyway, she got a face-to-face -face meeting with all of them wow. individually. But what she did before she went into those meetings is she asked God for at least one prophetic piece of revelation to share in that particular meeting. 
And she said in all 12 meetings, she had these incredible divine encounters where she was able to share the heart of God with these 12 chief executives. With, with one of these guys, before she went in, she felt God speak to her about um, a, a, an issue of struggle with another um, key member on his, um, on his committee. And she said she knew that she couldn't share it in that way. So she was thinking, God, give me wisdom on how to share this with him. So she went into this meeting and she said, listen, I, I just, uh, I've, I've just learned this whole thing about keeping your love on. And basically what that means is that when people disagree with you, we've got to learn how to disagree honorably and how to draw the best out of one another, how to play to each other's strengths but cover each other's weaknesses. And anyway, she just began to kind of counsel and talk to this guy, and his, his jaw literally was dropping open as she was talking. And she, he stopped her, and she, he said, where did you get this stuff from? He said, I've been on leadership kind of uh, training literally all around the world. I've never heard anything like this. Where did you get this from? And she said, well, I got it from Jesus. <laughs> and he's like, please tell me more. Anyway, it opened up this incredible conversation for her. She was able to give him books by Danny Silk and all these kind of different guys. Um, she was also in another nation, in a foreign nation, uh, chairing one of these meetings. And a, a prince of this Arab nation came to her during one of the coffee breaks. And he said, I don't know what it is, but there is something different about you than everybody else in this room. Tell me what it is. <laughs> Tell me what it is. This is in a, in a, in a Muslim-majority nation, and this prince of this nation is saying, what is it about you that's different? And she was able to share openly about Jesus with, with him. And listen, this is what you and I are called to do. Your calling as a Christian is not just to get by and learn how to have a quiet time. Your job, your mission as a Christian is actually to change the culture where God has placed you. God has placed you like yeast in a batch of dough so that you would infiltrate with the kingdom of God that lives within you so that the kingdom of heaven starts to get transplanted on this earth. Whether that's in your, at the school gate, whether it's in your neighborhood, whether it's in your key friendships, whether it's in your office, whether it's in your sphere of influence, whether it's in the nations, God has called you to make a difference and to change culture where you've been placed. And you're to do this Partly with the wisdom that God provides. Proverbs 8.11 says this, that wisdom is more precious than rubies and nothing you desire can compare with her. Wisdom is a treasure. It's a treasure. And Paul puts it like this in Ephesians 1.17. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And I want to suggest to you this morning that wisdom and revelation are not only the means by which you come to know God yourself, but they are also the means by which you make God known to others. Wisdom and revelation. This is not just about you and God. Actually, it's about you taking the spirit of wisdom and revelation and making Christ known in your area of influence. Wisdom and revelation. And historically, I think that we've, as Christians, spent a lot of time trying to develop revelation and less time trying to develop wisdom. Because we see revelation as sexy, but wisdom is kind of boring. <laughs> think, yeah, let's just get more revelation and insight, and we want more, we want more. But actually, you need to understand that without wisdom, nothing actually gets built. Revelation, if you like, provides the raw materials to work with. But then the question is, what do we do with those raw materials? 
How do we build with them? Proverbs 24.3 says this, that a house is built by wisdom and is established by understanding. Wisdom and revelation are like the divine left-right hook of the kingdom. You need both if something is going to get built. You need to understand not only God, what God wants to do, but also how to do it. And that is the way that cultures and nations get transformed, is by people who understand what the Father is doing, but also understand how to go about it. A friend of mine who's a, who's a prophetic scientist, didn't know that was a calling, but it is, a prophetic scientist, he, uh, he's working in a particular kind of field of science up in the northeast of England, and uh, one night he had a dream, and in this dream he got a revelation about a molecular structure. And he, he saw this structure in his dream. And it was so vivid that he woke up after he saw this molecular structure and he began to just draw it on the pad of paper next to his bedside. And in the morning as he began to pray about this, God said to him, this is a cure for brain cancer. Now, how many of you know at that moment you've got a revelation from the Father? Now, what wisdom does is say, what should I do with this? If you sit around with a revelation about the cure for brain cancer in your little pocket, guess what? That's not going to do anybody any good. And so what he did, because he's a scientist, he took that into his laboratory and he began to test it. And he began to find this molecular structure. And it's now kind of undergoing kind of scientific tests in laboratories across the world. Because he got revelation, but he also got wisdom about what to do with it. So the question this morning is, are you growing in revelation but also wisdom? Because it's by wisdom that house gets built. It's the combination of these two things that brings lasting transformation. And one of the guys in Scripture who I think demonstrates remarkable wisdom is Joseph. And time doesn't permit us to look at all of what I was going to look at this morning, but I want to look at one lesson from the life of Joseph. Many of you will be familiar with Joseph's story. Joseph was... Uh, Brought up in a very dysfunctional family. You can read about his story in Genesis 37. Uh, he was the 11th of 12 sons. Um, he had 10 kind of half-brothers. Um, half and he was favorited by his father, Jacob. He was his father's favorite because he was born in Jacob's later years. And remember, he's the one that got given the kind of technicolor dream coats. You know, kind of that whole kind of Joseph musical thing. That's actually in the Bible. And um, <coughs> he, was, he was showing great favoritism by his father, Jacob. And that ultimately led for a, for a recipe for disaster in his own family. There was lots of strife. There was lots of jealousy. There was lots of dysfunctionality. Some of you come from those kind of families. Joseph came from that kind of family. And ultimately what happens in Joseph's life is his brothers get so jealous and so mad with him that they throw him down a hole and they sell him into slavery in Egypt as a 17-year-old. And I just want to pick up one lesson of wisdom in Joseph's life from that moment that he gets sold into slavery, into the service of a man called Potiphar in Egypt. And the lesson that we learn in this season of Joseph's life is this, is that wisdom builds through managing favor. Wisdom builds through managing favor. This is what we read in Genesis 39, verse 2 and 3. When his master Potiphar saw that the Lord was with Joseph and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household 
and he entrusted to his care everything that he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything that Potiphar had. Joseph, even as a young man, as a 17-year-old, so is enabled to manage the favor that is on his life from God that all of Potiphar's household begins to be blessed. And Potiphar notices. He notices that there is such favor on Joseph's life that he entrusts everything into Joseph's care. Now, this guy doesn't know God. This guy is, is a pagan man. He, he doesn't know where this favor is coming from. But all he knows is Joseph exhibits such extraordinary favor that everything he touches turns to gold. And Joseph's very life becomes, begins to become a prophetic word. And I want to suggest to you that one of the ways that wisdom builds in cultures is through managing the favor of God on your life well. The right Reverend Gillian Adams says this about favor. He says, favor is the process by which God gives you an unfair advantage over all of your peers. Did you get that? Favor is the process by which God gives you, as a child of God, an unfair advantage over all of your peers. Your peers. See, favor has nothing to do with intelligence, has nothing to do with education, has nothing to do with circumstance. Favor has everything to do with the one that you're connected to. And because you are a child of God, you now have extraordinary favor on your life. The question is, what are you doing with the favor that is on your life? Are you managing that favor so that all around you in your sphere of influence look at you and say, what is it that you carry? What, I don't know the God that you worship, but I can see that there is something different about you. There is something on you that makes your environment prosper. And that's called managing favor. Paul puts it this way in Romans 5.17. He says, For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. That is a beautiful description of favor. You as a Christian are called to reign in life. To reign in life. See, before you can deliver a message with authority, you have to become a message that has authority. See, before Joseph could stand before kings and rulers and prophesy to them, which he did, he, his life actually had to become a message of favor. Before people can hear the good news from your lips, you have to become good news to them. You have to become a living, representing, breathing example, a representation of the Father on the earth so that people look at your life and say, what is it about you? That's called managing favor well. Your life is your calling card through the way in which you manage the favor on your life, particularly in times of trouble and difficulty. Two of my heroes in church history are uh, uh, two men called Latimer and Ridley, who were both burnt at the stake as heretics under the reign of Queen Mary. And they, uh, they basically were, were burnt at the stake for preaching the gospel and, and preaching the Bible and saying everyone should have access to the Bible to read it for themselves. And Mary said, no, no, we're not having that. We're going to kill you. And uh, 
what happened as they were uh, being tied to the stake to be burnt in front of a, a massive crowd of people is that the guy in charge of the fire put damp wood on the fire instead of dry wood, which basically meant as they were burning at the stake, they burnt extremely, extremely slowly, which meant that they were still conscious as their legs were burning, as their body was burning from the top up, from the bottom up. And they died in excruciating agony. But this is what Latimer said to his friend Ridley as they were tied next to each other. He said, be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle in England as I hope, by God's grace, shall never be put out. Let me tell you, that is called reigning in life. In fact, reigning in death. There is something so powerful when you manage the favor that's on your life, particularly in a time of trouble, particularly in the trial. And what happens, you see, when you manage the grace of God and the favor of God well, particularly in tests, is that it leads to increased influence where God has called you. If you want increased influence in your workplace, in your calling, one of the things you're going to have to do is manage your favor well, because when you do, it leads to increased influence. We noticed this recently in our own family life. Many of you will know that uh, Carol's father uh, passed away in January of this year. Massive shock to the whole family. And I had the very kind of sad privilege, I guess, of taking the family funeral. Uh, none of the rest of Carol's side of the family are Christians. And they really didn't want any mention of Jesus at the funeral. They wanted no songs. They wanted no hymns. They wanted no benedictions. They wanted no dedications. They didn't want any of that kind of stuff. And so in the planning of the funeral, they're like, okay, we want you to take the funeral, but we want no mention of Jesus whatsoever. And so I was in this strange position of taking a funeral where I'm not quite sure how we do this thing without Jesus. But you know, the remarkable thing is when you're in those moments, God gives you grace and wisdom to bring the kingdom even without mentioning the king. And it was an astonishing moment as I was able to take that funeral and then afterwards speaking to family member after family member, friends of the family who said, we have never ever been to a funeral like the one we've been to today. In fact, Carol's brother said, I never thought that a funeral could actually make me feel happier at the end. He said, but somehow I feel happier as a result of what's just happened in that room. Even though it's tragic, something, there was something different. And I tell you, it's led to increased influence. Because when you manage your favor well, suddenly doors open. That's what happens. And in my experience, many Christians sabotage their favor because they don't deal with the heart issues of fear. We don't deal with the heart issues inside that can cause us to sabotage the favor that God has given us. Because if the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, then the fear of man is the beginning of all sorts of foolishness. If you live a life where fear of man rules your existence, let me tell you, you will not be able to exhibit the wisdom of God in your life in the way that God intends. I love what Bill Johnson says. He says, if you don't live for the praise of men, you won't die by their criticisms either. I love that. If you're not living for the praise of men, then actually their criticisms, they're not really going to knock you off course either. Are you living from a fear of God which brings wisdom and an ability to stand even in trial? Or are you actually still living in this zone where you're fearing man? So important that we deal with those issues. Because Christians who think like paupers end up destroying the very opportunities that favor opens up to them. 
say that again because that was important. Christians who still think like paupers instead of sons end up sabotaging the very opportunities that favor presents to them. Because when you stand before kings and rulers, how many of you know it's important in that moment that you are secure in your sonship? That whether you're standing in Buckingham Palace or Bedford Prison, neither of them moves you because you know who you are. External circumstance doesn't move you. This moves you. Who you are moves you. Your circumstance doesn't change you. And that's why I think for Joseph, he could be in prison, he could be enslaved, or he could be a ruler in the superpower of the day, which was Egypt, and he remained the same. Because it was this that moved him and not this. We've got to think like sons. And I'll just finish on this because I think the key for Joseph in learning to stand with such dignity and manage with favor was that he knew he was his daddy's favorite. He knew he was his daddy's favorite because the story of Joseph is that he grew up under this environment where his father, Jacob, favored him above all his brothers. Now, how many of you know, if you're, if you're a father or mother, that is a recipe for disaster in your family, okay? But listen, God actually treats all of us as his favorites. You are God's favorite. He, he favors you. He favors you. He favors you. He favors you. He fav- you're all his favorites. God somehow has the ability to show favoritism to all of us all at the same time. That's how God works. And for for Joseph, he grew up under this understanding of, I am favored by my father. I'm my daddy's favorite. I have an unfair advantage because of who I am. My kids know they have an unfair advantage because of who I am. I am always going to be in their corner. I'm always going to be in there. I'm always going to be punching for them. They have an unfair advantage because of who they are. The question is, do you understand that you're your daddy's favorite? Because I tell you, that's one of the keys to learning how to manage wisdom and favor well in your life. Jesus said that you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. John 8, 22, that word for truth actually is the word for reality. Jesus is saying, when you know the right reality, the right reality will bring you freedom. I wonder this morning, are you living in the right reality of who you are? Because when you are, you can learn to steward the favor so that the wisdom of God gets demonstrated to this world. Jesus said, you've been planted like yeast in a batch of dough. Jesus is hiding his people into all areas of society because he wants his kingdom to come. And in this whole area of the treasure principle, God is calling you not just to manage your finances well, but manage your wisdom well so that Christ can be made known.